0: ultimate hope is to his return when he will make all things right friends have you ever listened to music and um, all of a sudden you are at that point in listening to your music when a change when a song ends and it changes to a new song and uh, the new song is so much louder than the previous song that you feel like you have to turn down the volume have you ever been there In some ways, the passage we're going to embark on today will feel a similar and will give a similar impression. We're back in the book of Acts. I encourage you to open to chapter 12. And as you turn there, and by the way, for those of you who are visiting us for the first time, <clears throat> overall so far in this, in this year, we have gone through the book of, of Acts uh, chapter by chapter. Uh, we've spent 25 sermons this is the 25th sermon and we're just in chapter 12 Um, so we're picking up again and we don't know how long it'll be until we finish Um, but just a reminder as you turn there to chapter 12 um, remember the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch how sweet it was and remember after that in chapter 9 the conversion of a persecutor Saul how amazing that was And remember a few weeks ago, the last time I was here in the pulpit, uh, we looked twice in two chapters at the conversion of Cornelius, the Gentile. How amazing that was. And after all all those sweet pictures of God's power and of God's grace, we get to chapter 12, where we hear of persecution, where we hear of people being killed, and it feels like we want to turn down this part of the story of Acts because it's too loud. We, we don't like it. It's hard. It's threatening. And yet, it's part of God's Word. In the midst of this persecution that we will hear of in chapter 12, we see a God who is able to rescue and triumph. And this is a passage that we opened this morning Acts 12, if you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, uh, we encourage you to get a Bible in the pew in front of you, and uh, you may find this passage on page number um, 920. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter com- continued knocking, and when they opened they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now when Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, a king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's court country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. Let's pray that the Lord might speak to us, to our hearts through this word. Would you bow with me in our prayer? Oh Gracious God, how we thank you for giving us another reminder of your ability to rescue, of your ability to save. Oh Lord, we pray as we hear Your word this morning. We pray that we would hear from you. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ and for his glory, we pray. Amen. Another wave of persecution. This time from Herod. Did you know there are five Herods, as we know them in the Bible? This is the fourth of the five. And the occasion of this persecution by by this fourth Herod now becomes Luke's emphasis at at this point in the book of Acts. This chapter, chapter 12, closes the second section of Acts. Um, I know it was a long time ago when we began the second section. It was all the way in chapter 6, verse 8, with the story of Stephen's persecution. This is, that's when the second section of Acts began. And now, this last chapter of the second section ends again on this story and note of persecution. But amazingly, in, in this chapter, Herod's persecution is not the last word. Instead, the last word in this section is the news about Herod's death. And about the triumph of God's word. And the progress of God's word, despite the persecution that this Herod initiated again. Christians may at times experience failures. And at times, even death for the sake of Christ. I know we, we don't see that here in, in Austin very much. But around the world, there are Christians Experience the even death for the sake of Christ, but we all know we, we too may experience failures. We too may experience weaknesses, and it feels like we're not progressing. But friends, we're reminded that the truth, which we which we proclaim, will never fail. And this is a message that we see here in this chapter 12, in this chapter chapter 12 of Acts that even though Christians may fail and even experience death for the sake of Christ, that which they proclaim will never fail. John Stott says the following summary of this chapter. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans, and to establish his own in their place. This is what chapter 12 is about. When we look at this chapter, we can't escape this striking contrast that Luke wants to present to us, that opposing God or stealing his glory will never turn out well. Not in the end. Now, it's true It's true that God may permit the wicked to feel like they are in control. It's true that God may permit the wicked to act as they please for a while. Even for a long while. It's true that God may give the wicked the impression that nothing can stop them. And God often allows the wicked to develop this impression. And Herod had this impression. But not forever. Not forever. So what can we learn from these stories that are wrapped around Herod and around God's ability, God's ultimate control? What can we learn from these stories, if you're a Christ follower, or a seeker, or even a God opposer, this morning, there's great, a great message for each of us from this passage. And here's the first one. If you like taking notes, here's the first lesson. Here's the first message we get from this story. The danger and peace of following Jesus. The danger and peace of following Jesus This chapter begins with this chilling reminder that following Jesus can bring danger. We're not so used to it in the West, here in America. But we must remember that this is true. It can happen here as well. Following Jesus or belonging to the church, which, by the way, side note, in the book of Acts, the two are the same thing. Following Jesus and belonging to the church are the same thing in the book of Acts. Um, Following Jesus meant that you are now a target of threats from the outside. Following Jesus means that now you are a target of threats from the outside. In verse 1, we are told that Herod, king the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and one of those he killed was James, the apostle, the brother of John. And by the way, this James and his brother asked Jesus, to receive the first seats when Jesus will come into his kingdom. And remember what Jesus told him? That he, first of all, he's not able to, to assign those seats, but that they will be baptized with his same baptism and drink the same cup as he will drink. How interesting that James is the first to drink the cup among the twelve. look at verse 3. When Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now Herod's Herod's power over Peter is seen in a number of ways. Not only in just coming up on the fly and and initiating the idea of imprisoning Peter also for no reason except the thought pleased the Jews. But Herod's sense of control over Peter is seen in the fact that he puts four squads of soldiers to bound Peter in prison. Now, you don't need four squads of soldiers um, to protect a prisoner who's already in a prison, in a facility that they already protected. But Herod feels like he wants to show his control over Peter by putting two soldiers tied with two chains to Peter And then the other two soldiers protecting the cell entrance. Peter was the most protected man during the stay in prison of all the people in that prison. Now, Herod may have known something about Peter's escape in chapter 5. So, Herod just wanted to make sure that he gets his base covered with these four extra soldiers. But then, notice... In the midst of giving this impression of what Herod is able to do and Herod's control over Peter, contrasted to this, look at how Luke describes Peter for us. What is Peter doing while he's bound to, four, to two soldiers and protected by other two at the doorway of the, of the prison cell? And the night before he's about to be executed, what does Peter do? He is sleeping. Now, how can you sleep when you are under so much control and oppression and when you know that next day is execution day? I love what John Chrysostom of the 4th century said about this. It's beautiful that Paul gets to sing hymns while Peter here sleeps. How, How can he do that in the face of persecution, in the face of execution day? I would submit to you that only when you have a biblical view of God can you look at death defiantly and have peace to sleep even in moments as these. Uh, Peter was there when the believers in chapter 4 prayed that great prayer uh, after the release of Peter and John from prison. Remember what the believers prayed in chapter 4? about uh, God's sovereign control over Pilate and Herod. They said to do whatever God, God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. That's what the believers in chapter 4 prayed. Why be anxious when you know that King Herod and Pilate or whatever king is only able to do what God had predestined? You see, only such a biblical view of God helps us have peace in the face of death, in the face of trials, in the face of oppression. Why be anxious in the face of death when we know that God is sovereign over our destinies? In the midst of such danger, Peter can sleep. You know who else slept in the face of danger? In the Bible, remember Jesus in the boat? The disciples are thinking they're going to drown, and Jesus is in the boat sleeping. Friends, following Jesus can often be a dangerous business, but be not afraid. Death cannot harm us the worst thing that can happen to those who follow Christ is not forfeiting our lives, but forfeiting our Lord. Peter could sleep because he knew that nothing could happen to him that has not yet first been approved by God. Nothing could happen to him that was not part of the plan of the Lord. And this is where we can find peace in the midst of danger. That nothing Cannot, nothing can happen to us that has not first been approved by our Lord. Remember the verse in the Bible that says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you? Do you know who wrote those verses? Peter. He wrote him. It was after this event. He knew how to sleep when next day is execution day. How can you sleep when you're so protected and oppressed that it feels like there's no human way out? Cast your anxieties on him. Because He cares for you. Only those who have this view of God, of God's sovereign control, and of God's eternal goodness for you, only they can sleep at night in the midst of danger. Friends, let me ask you this question. Are there things in your life that keep you up at night and make you lose sleep? Only those who know God intimately as sovereign and eternally good are able to experience the peace of mind that makes them go to sleep in the midst of danger. Following Jesus is both a dangerous business, but friends, in the midst of that danger, there is a peace that only those who know Jesus can experience, so they too can sleep in the midst of danger. This is the first lesson. This is the first reminder that Luke wants to bring to us. But then the second lesson is that God is able to rescue. God is able to rescue. This is one of the most amazing rescue stories in all the Bible. And the details of it are such that give us the impression that it's fairy tale times. You know, angels, um, chains falling off, gates opening. Nothing in this rescue story resembles human ability to rescue. In verse 9, even Peter had a hard time believing that this was a true story. He thought he had a dream. He thought he had a vision. But this rescue story has another interesting detail. Luke tells us not only about the details of the rescue, how it happened, Luke tells us about the timing of the rescue. It was the night before his execution. Early in the chapter, Luke tells us that Herod's intent was to execute Peter after the Passover. Well, you do the math. That means this night, before execution day, it's Passover night. God was going to act once again in a rescuing way. Just as he has many, many centuries prior to this night, when God had rescued Israel from the hands of Pharaoh. And he had rescued not just one man, he had rescued an entire people. This is a God who is able to rescue. And now as a reminder of God's ability, God is now rescuing Peter in an incredibly miraculous way. Our God is a God who is able to rescue from the worst of circumstances. There's nothing. There's nothing. There is nothing which is too difficult for the Lord to perform a rescue plan. Friend, I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who needs to be reminded of this truth. I wonder if there's anyone this morning who feels like there's no hope. There's no hope for the situation you're in. That not even God might be able to help you. And you are overwhelmed with this sense of helplessness. Luke wants to remind the church, remind you, that even when kings and peoples get what they want, even when they're able to inflict hardship and you are in the midst of it or underneath it all, even when it feels like the world is in control, in great control, Luke reminds us through this rescuing story that God is in ultimate control. There is a God who is able to interrupt the flow of human activity and to accomplish as He pleases not as the Herods of this world please, not as the people of this world desire. Peter's explanation in verse 11 is is stunning. He says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is what the point of the story is, that God is able to rescue. But notice that when Peter comes to himself, the focus is not on the angel but on the Lord. Today we may get preoccupied with the presence or absence of angels, but the Lord wants us to be preoccupied with Himself. The Lord may indeed send angels. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that we should entertain strangers and house them because some have entertained angels without knowing. The Lord knows and is able to send His angels to rescue, but whether He does it by sending angels or other ways, our focus should be on the Lord who is able to rescue. This powerful reminder of the Lord and His ability to rescue makes most sense not just when we read about Peter's rescue, but when we read it against verse 2 in our passage. That prying to rescuing Peter Herod already killed James. In the stories of James and Peter, putting them together, we are challenged to live with the mystery of God's providence. You see, God is able to rescue. But does God act the same way in every situation? The answer is no. He rescued Peter. Why didn't he rescue James? And this is where the story challenges us to trust in God's sovereignty and in His goodness and in His continued care for us, whether we are in the shoes of James, whether we are in the shoes of Peter, in every circumstance, whether in death or in being rescued. Friends, by putting James and Peter side by side, Luke bolsters our faith in believing in God's ability to rescue, but without demanding his rescue in every situation. You know who did this so well in the Old Testament? The three Hebrew boys, as they were facing the fiery furnace. You remember what they said to to the king? Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We must be careful that we don't turn God's ability to rescue in our demand that he does so in every situation. We must be careful of this danger. Occasionally I hear people who um, have walked with the Lord for a while, and then they walked away from the Lord. And inquiring why they left away, walked away from God, the reason in some situations that I've heard uh, was that they went through a very, very, very difficult situation. They had prayed and prayed and prayed, asked God to intervene, and God didn't. So they said, why continue to believe in a God that does not intervene? And there are people who walk away. You might know some who have walked away from the faith because God did not intervene as they wanted. Friends, such people show that all along they have worshipped and followed not God but their own will and have tried to put God to serve their will. At the end of the day, we must remember that God can be equally glorified through our life as through our death. God can glorify himself equally through our rescue as through our death. And that's why these stories of James and Peter are put side by side. It's the same God. God who is able to rescue the same way even though he allowed James to be killed and got Peter out of the dungeon in such a miraculous way. Friends, it's not our job to determine which way the Lord chooses to glorify himself. But be assured of this, that our God is able to glorify himself both through our rescue and through our life as much as through our death. There's a third aspect that we are called to learn from this chapter. God makes his word triumphant. The story of Herod comes to a swift end when he accepts praises from his people as if he was God. And by swiftly intervening in this story, specifically in Herod's life, through the medium of another angel, God shows us how mistaken and empty the praises of the people were. And how mistaken Herod was to accept those praises. No no mortal being must ever be worshipped as if he or she was in the place of God. It's amazing that God didn't strike Herod when he killed James. It's amazing that God did not strike Herod when Herod imprisoned Peter. Peter. Why not? I don't know. None of us know God's timing on when he brings vengeance on the wicked. None of us know. But I think there's some irony here. God strikes Herod down in the midst of him sitting on his throne, in the midst of the praises of the people that they bring to him as being God. This is God's irony. This is God's sense of humor in the midst of this awe, that God is able and decides to bring Herod down at the moment when Herod receives and accepts the glory that is due only to God. Friends, we human beings not only have fallen short of the glory of God, but in our fallen nature, we love stealing God's own glory. And in our fallen nature, we love giving God's glory to people and to attribute that which belongs to God to people. The fault here is not just with Herod. It's with the people Herod, had the people that followed him, the people that praised him. It is by giving glory to people rather than the one true God. And God intervenes in the midst of all this. On the backdrop of God's divine judgment of Herod, Luke concludes in verse 24 with a hallmark statement for the book of Acts. Against Herod's life coming to an end swiftly, in the midst of praises, in the midst of his glory, in the midst of his throne, swiftly we have a contrast. Herod's dead, but the word of God increased and multiplied. This is a hallmark, a signature statement for the book of Acts. He who was praised as being a God was eaten by worms and now laying dead. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. This is a triumph of the Word of God. It's not simply in the dethroning of Herod's and of the Herod's of this world, not simply in rescuing his people from danger. This conclusion that Luke gives us that the Word of God increased and multiplied covers the entire chapter 12. God's word increased, increased and multiplied even after James was killed, even after the persecution and the hardships that the church in Jerusalem went through. Yes, Peter's rescue and Herod's death sentence showed that God was able and was greater than Herod. Friends, our eyes should not look simply at, the re, at these rescue stories, but to the God Who is able to make his word triumph and increase in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. What does it mean for the word of God to increase and multiply? It means that there are more and more people on whose lips the word of God is found. And nothing can stop the increasing of God's word. His true church will always obey him and always proclaim him. Oh, how I long as a pastor how I long that we would see the Word of God increase and multiply in Austin. Increase and multiply through the ministry of this church among us. To see men and women and children who have not known God in their hearts, who have not known the Word of God truly in their beings, who have not known or had the Word of God on their lips, to come to know Him, to come and embrace Him. To come and speak of his glories. To come and speak of his rescue. To come and speak of his salvation. All these folks that we don't know of, we just hear that the word of God increased and multiplied. That means there are more and more people speaking the word of God. Oh friends, in Acts, church growth was often described by this phrase, that God's word increased and multiplied. What is this word? It's a word of the gospel. It's a news of the gospel. That through Jesus, we, each and every one of us who are guilty sinners, rebels against a holy and perfect God who created us, who owns us, yet we have chosen to go our own ways. We have chosen to walk away from God and live life in our own way, in our own direction, as we please. But God, in His mercy, did not allow us to walk haywardly, in our own ways stubbornly in opposition to him but God found a way to bring us back to himself to rescue us to make the chains of sin fall off our hands so that we might indeed be able to turn back to God and start following him and it is to the news that God and Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserved. It is through that news that sinners are asked and called to turn back to God. And when sinners do that, when people like you and me turn back to the Lord, away from sin, turning to Christ, God makes those chains fall off. And we're able to follow God. Oh friend, if you've never embraced this word of the gospel, I pray that today you would do so. If you'd like to know more about what this means, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But just as Peter experienced this this freedom in prison, in the same way, the gospel frees us, brings us out. We cannot rescue ourselves. We need God's special and miraculous intervention to rescue us from the bondage of our own sin. And I pray that he would do so again this morning. And I pray that this word of salvation will be on our lips and will grow and increase on the lips of the people of God so that indeed this word may increase and multiply in Austin and around the world. God makes his word triumph. Last but not least message is that the church through all this was earnestly praying. The church through all this was earnestly praying. Several times in the book of Acts, we see the importance of prayer and specifically of corporate prayer, the church gathering to pray. If the weapons of the world, if the weapons of Herod's are swords, prisons, death threat, threats, soldiers, the weapon of the church is prayer. The church responds through prayer. Prayer. And yet, we use it so little today. Even as Christians have no problem speaking about prayer all the time, there seems to be so little prayer in the life of the church in general. That's why we focus in our services in the morning service to include more prayer in our times. And also, we have begun a Sunday evening prayer service that we want to encourage people to come and gather to pray earnestly, corporately. This is is the prayer of the church in Acts 12. It was a corporate experience. Many were gathered in the house of Mary as Peter went to tell of his release. Now, it's interesting. Either Peter went to sleep very early that night or the church was praying together very late in the evening. But they were corporately gathered to pray. And their prayer is earnest. Verse 5. By the way, this idea of an earnest prayer In in, in the Greek language, this phrase is used only once before when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. The church was earnestly praying. Not prayer as usual, but earnestly praying. And I have a question. What would it take for Park Hills Baptist Church to pray like this? What would it take for Park Hills Baptist Church to pray like this? I want to challenge us, church family. I want to challenge us to grow in our gathering to pray and in our earnestness to pray together. Let's do so so that the Lord might continue to do his rescuing and saving activity. What were they praying about? It's amazing that when Peter gets to the door, they don't want to believe it. Now, there are two possibilities. Either you know they pray, but they don't really believe it. They really want to, but they don't really believe it. So when it happens, they just have a hard time believing it? That's one possibility. The other possibility might well be that actually Peter's release may have not been the centerpiece of their prayer requests. They may have been, been praying for other things for Peter as well. Just as P- J- Jesus prayed for, Jesus, for, for Peter on the night when Peter betrayed him. Remember what Jesus prayed for Peter? That Satan has asked to sift you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Peter said, Oh, Lord, you don't have to worry about that. I'm ready to go with you to prison and even to death. And Jesus said to him, Oh, no, you won't. Not now. Your faith is so weak now that you will You'll abandon me and disown me three times before the rooster Is it possible that the church here was praying more than for just Peter's release? They were perhaps praying for faith. They were praying for endurance. They were praying for perseverance. They were praying for their own zeal and, and boldness in the midst of persecution. We don't know what they prayed for, but bottom line is this. When Peter, when the answer to prayer shows up at the door, they are amazed that God answered above and beyond what they had asked for. That's a God we pray to. That's a God we worship. As Ephesians 3:20 reminds us, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, our prayers are not just for what we need here and now, in our physical, material sense. We pray for God's kingdom, God's plan, God's word, God's salvation, to triumph, to extend, to abound. And when God gives such surprises, we can indeed rejoice that God does above and beyond, and does far more abundantly than all we ask or think. A chapter that started so negative on such a loud noise and so beautifully on God's victory, on God's rescue. Some of us might be in the shoes of James. Some of us might be in the shoes of Peter. Some of us this morning might be in the shoes of the church, praying. Some of us might be in the shoes of Herod. Oh, friends, remember the greatness and glory of God who in the midst of danger is able to make his servants sleep in the midst of danger he's able to make his servants call on him and gather to pray and to remind them of his greatness god gives them and us this token of his greatness to rescue and triumph may god do that among us in fresh ways in greater ways that we can expect would you pray with me god thank you that you're a god who rescues. And you are a God whose word is able to triumph and grow and increase in the midst of danger, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of challenges. Oh, Lord, we pray, would you let your word increase and grow among us in our lives, in the lives of this church, in our city. We pray that you would do that for your glory and honor. And may your church continue to grow in being dependent upon you, in praying earnestly that you would intervene, that you would do great works among us so that your name would be glorified, so that the gospel may extend to the ends of the earth. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Let's conclude our time.